Before we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate word, we pray that you would open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit would open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write it on their hearts, your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in Mark's gospel to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 at verse 27. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1078 of many of our pew Bibles. Um, Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So we're going to begin our reading at Mark chapter 11, 27, and read through chapter 12, verse 12, and think about what God's Word has to teach us here. So Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own Word. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were, af- they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another And him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But these tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him 
and went away. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Uh, Once again in this passage, we see something we've seen before in the book of Mark, the religious authorities coming into conflict with Jesus. Uh, This is nothing new uh, that they come into conflict with Jesus. We've seen this happen. Uh, We know from the other gospels this happened quite often. Um, This is nothing new. But in, in all of those confrontations, they were always questioning, we could say, the substance of his ministry the things he was doing and the things he was saying and trying to take issue with what he was doing and what he was saying, maybe the substance of his ministry. Here they seem to change their tactics a little bit and attack not the substance but the source. Um, They don't argue with him about what he's doing. They don't argue with him about what he's saying. They try to take another tack and say, what is the source of your authority? Uh, What gives you the right, we might say? to do the things that you're doing. Um, And this is a question of authority that will kick off a number of confrontations with Jesus um, in the next few verses. Uh, One commentator said, the question of Jesus' authority introduces a sequence of five conflict situations in Jerusalem from chapter 1127 through chapter 1237. Uh, This is not going to be the last time they come into conflict with Jesus, uh, but as he's once again in the temple, they are questioning his authority. And so, of course, the Holy Spirit uses this opportunity and this question to talk to us about the authority of Jesus and what he's come into the world to do. And so we see first the question of authority. That's the first thing we want to look at in this passage, the question of authority, which is answered by Jesus' question of ability. And that's the second thing we want to look at in this passage, the question of ability. And finally, the exposure of identity that we see in the parable. So that's how we want to think about this passage together. The question of authority, the question of ability, and the exposure of identity. Um, At the beginning of this text, we find Jesus once again in the temple with his disciples. Uh, We're told that he's come back to the temple in Jerusalem Um, And the sequence of events laid out in chapter 11 uh, puts these things happening in a series of days. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Sunday, what we often call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Then we're told the next day he went to the temple to cleanse the temple. Um, And then we had seen that they had cursed the fig tree on the way in to do that. And so on the next day when they're coming back into Jerusalem, they see that the fig tree is withered. So this is probably Tuesday. Um, if you're keeping score. Uh, But the most important thing to understand is this is the day after he has cleansed the temple. The day after he's done what he's done in the temple where he cleansed it, he kicked out the merchants out of the court of the Gentiles, and then he taught the people about what the significance of that act was. Um, And so really when when the authorities come and say to him, by what authority do you do these things? What he had just done in the temple the day before are the these things that they're talking about. Uh, What he did in the temple and what he's been teaching. And we're told that the people that confront him with this question are the religious authorities, all of the religious leaders that would have made up the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Uh, Those would have been the three offices that would make up the Sanhedrin, the ruling council um, of the religious authorities. And so they seem to come as representatives of the Sanhedrin to put this question to him. And the question is, who gave you the authority to teach and act as you have in the temple? 
Now, the one thing we've learned through these conflict narratives is that their questions are never sincere, right? This is not a sincere question asking, oh, you know, by what authority are you doing this? Um, They meant to say something by this question. They meant to imply something, right? The implication was, we are the authorities, and we give people authority to act and to teach in the temple. We have not given you any authority, So by what authority do you do these things? And I imagine they were pretty confident in that question. How can he answer this question? Authority comes from us. We have not given it. So surely he's going to be forced to admit that he's acting without authority. Um, We've given you no official status, as one person put it. So how do you dare to do an official act? I think that's what they intend to do. Um, And John Calvin, thinking about that question, I think rightly said, the question is absurd on its face to put this question to Jesus. Where do you get your authority? Calvin says, this was a malicious and wicked inquiry. For what could be more unreasonable than that? After seeing the hand of God openly displayed in curing the lame and blind, They should doubt if Jesus were a private individual who had rashly assumed this authority for himself. Um, He's he's exactly right, isn't he? If they had really taken a hard look at what Jesus had been doing, they would know by whose authority he was doing it. Uh, But they're really not interested in in the truth of the question. They're really not interested. All they want to do is try to expose Jesus as a man who's acting on his own authority. Um, and use that as a reason for people not to believe in him. So how does Jesus address that question of authority? Um, By a question of his own. Um, A question of their ability to understand things. Um, It's interesting how Jesus answers their question. Um, I'm always amazed how Jesus answers questions that are put to him given who he is. Um, I'm always struck that if I were Jesus, I would not have had the patience that he had. Um, And it reminds me that I'm not Jesus. You can write that down in your notes. Um, And it reminds me, sadly, how far from Jesus I really am. Um, Because how does he answer this, this absurd question, this wicked and malicious question that's put to him? Uh, he answers it with remarkable wisdom. And he says to them, I will answer your question if you answer one of mine. And you can almost imagine the smirks that would come on their faces as they hear him say, I'll put a question to you and see if you can answer me. These were the, these were the religious experts, right? They knew everything. And I can't help but think that as he begins this statement to them, they must have been thinking to themselves, We are the religious experts. What are the chances you can put a question to us that we cannot answer? And certainly some rube from the sticks out in Nazareth is not going to have a question for us that we cannot answer. Um, So, okay, what is the question that you have for us? We'll answer it, and then you'll be forced to answer our question. And what is the question that Jesus asked them? 
it actually makes it pretty simple for them. It's a multiple choice question, and he gives them both the possible answers. I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, that's John the Baptist, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. It's a simple question. Um, There's only one of two answers to that question. But I imagine that any smugness or any smirking that was going on in that moment disappeared pretty quickly as they realized the difficulty that would face them in answering that question one way or the other. Because what Jesus has done is confront them with the question of ability. Do you have the ability to determine the things that come from heaven and differentiate them from the things that just come from men? Let's take John the Baptist as an example. Do you have the ability to understand what comes from heaven and what comes from man? I want to know whether you have the ability to see that. Really, Jesus is saying, I want to understand this. Do you have the ability to recognize the authority that heaven gives? So answer me what, John, what John's baptism represented. And I think by John's baptism, Jesus is talking about John's whole ministry. He's summarizing the thing that we know John the best for. That's why we still call him John the Baptist or the baptizer. That's the thing we know him best for. But we know that that was not his only ministry. Because why was he baptizing? He was saying, I'm baptizing with a baptism for repentance so that the people are prepared to meet the Lord when he comes. Like his whole ministry, right, was a reminder There is one coming, and he will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Lord is coming, and so now is the time to smooth over the rough places, to raise up the low places, to bring them down, to make the way clear for the Lord, because he's coming, and we have to be ready to meet him when he comes. That was John's baptism, was a preparatory baptism for the coming of the Lord. And then when he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the Lord. That was John's ministry. And so by Jesus putting this question to the religious authorities, he's really asking them that question. Do you understand what he was doing? And do you understand it to be from heaven or from man? Did God give him the authority to do what he was doing or did he take that for himself? Answer that question of ability. And immediately these religious experts are caught flat-footed. And they have to have an emergency council meeting to discuss among themselves what are we going to do about this question. Um, If it wasn't so sad, it would be kind of comical. Okay, well, um, let's huddle up and talk about this. And they run through the options, right? Okay, it's 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 an either-or question, heaven or man, so let's think about our options. What if we say, from heaven? How, How will option A go? Well, the problem is none of us believe in John. 
And if we say that he came from heaven, what is Jesus' next question going to be from us? Then why didn't you believe in him? If you know he came from heaven and you don't believe in him, why don't you believe in him? Right? That, that's, a, that's a fatal flaw in that question. So they discuss it and they say, no, we can't, we can't answer it that way. So what's the other option? Option B. Uh, we can say he's from men. But notice as they contemplate answering that way, um, they can hardly finish thinking that through. Right? Verse 32, the, even the way they put it amongst themselves is, but shall we say from man? What's the problem with saying, no, he's just a guy. Do, do, he's doing his own thing. Nobody gave him authority. He was just acting on his own. What's the problem with saying that? Well, Mark tells us, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they're saying, all the people are thinking he's from heaven. So if we say he's not from heaven, he's from man, we're going to have a problem with all the people. Um, we're going to have a whole other kind of problem. Um, and so option A is no good. Option B is no good. Um, do you know what, notice what never comes up in their, in their discussion? The discussion never comes up, was John from heaven? What, are the, what is their discussion entirely uninterested in? They are uninterested in the truth. They are only interested in the consequences of how they answer. If we answer this way, Jesus will say that. If we answer this way, then we're going to have a problem with the crowd. But what do they never ask the question? Where did John come from? And what does that mean for how we relate to him? Do you see what the Holy Spirit is doing for us? Is reminding us that these men are not interested in truth. They are not interested in truth. They are not men of truth, and they are men who lack all spiritual insight. It's interesting that they know that all the people knew that John really was a prophet. All the people thought that. All the people saw that that was true. That was the level the people put John the Baptist on. Right? In Mark 8, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some people say he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. That's who people say you are. But you see how the people put those figures on that level? John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. That's where the people were thinking of John the Baptist. That's how they regarded him. They saw the truth that he really was one of the prophets. And one of the sad things is, as we've read through the Gospel of Mark, even wicked King Herod knew that truth. Right? Herod Antipas, who killed John the Baptist knew that he was a righteous and holy man. Right? That's why he held him for so long without killing him. We're told in Mark 6.20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. All the people know who John is. Even Herod knew who John was. The only people who don't seem to know who John was are the so-called religious authorities. They're the only ones who seem not to know the truth. And ultimately, they 
betray their falsehood, their spiritual blindness, and their ignorance when they answer the question by saying, we do not know. Right? They have their huddle, they break up, they come back and they say, we've talked about it, we've thought seriously about it. Our official answer is, we don't know. Now, they may have been trying to push the question off by saying something like, you know, well, we need to think about this and get back to you. We need to have, you know, a more official meeting with the full body. We need to fill out the forms. You know how these things go. They might have been trying to push off the answer. But what do they really reveal? They don't know. They don't know what the truth is. They don't know what heaven does. And that answer is really a lie. They know who John is, they just don't want to say he's from man. That's what they think. They just don't want to stand behind it. They don't have the courage of their conviction to say what they really think. And the way they answer and the way they think shows their spiritual blindness and their ignorance to heaven's testimony. And so our Lord simply says, if you can't answer my question, I won't answer yours. If you don't have the ability to determine the difference between what heaven does and what earth does, there's no point in me telling you by what authority I do these things. And then Jesus goes on to tell a parable that really exposes the identities of the people involved in this story. Um, He uses the parable he tells to really expose the identity of the religious authorities. It's this exchange with them that leads Jesus to tell the parable he does in chapter 12. He began to speak to them in parables. This is being addressed to those same religious authorities. And it's teaching us that as people come into conflict with Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, the Holy Spirit wants to make two things abundantly clear that the leaders of the people who reject him and claim to be the spiritual authorities are themselves dishonest, ignorant, and spiritually blind. So when they reject Jesus, it shouldn't be surprising that Jesus is rejected. Um, He's doing this to try, the Holy Spirit is doing this to try to help people understand. Anyone who would say, well, the religious leaders don't believe in him, um, The Holy Spirit is helping us to understand religious leaders have always behaved this way. It's interesting, a lot of the same arguments that the religious leaders of Jesus' day used against him were some of the same kinds of arguments the Church of Rome used against the Reformers. We didn't give you the authority to do this, so where does the authority come from? And the answer was the same, from God, from his word, from his son and his spirit. So it's no new thing if religious leaders who are themselves dishonest, ignorant, and spiritually blind reject the true servants of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit is telling us through this parable that through when they do this, when they reject Jesus, they are doing what dishonest, ignorant, spiritually blind leaders have always done to God's servants. What they've always done to God's true servants. That's the whole point of this parable. As one person put it, it is no new thing if the priests and other rulers of the church wickedly endeavor to defraud God of his right. For long ago they practiced the same kind of robbery towards the prophets, and they are now ready to slay the son. But they will not go unpunished, for God will arise and defend his right.
Uh, that's what this parable is about. And so Jesus uses a parable in a, in a situation that would have been very understandable to the people at the time. A man plants a vineyard and builds up a farming operation. He stands it up. That's what verse 1 is really about, chapter 12. He builds this vineyard. He stands it up. And after getting this operation moving, he leases it out to tenants who will work the farm for him. He builds it. He owns it. He leases it to farmers to work it to tenants. And then he moves abroad. He moves out of the country. He's not around anymore to be around the vineyard. And so these tenant farmers work the land, and the owner is abroad, and when it's time for him to collect his rents, the price of their lease, he sends a servant to go and to collect what is owed to him. And the first servant he sends, what do they do? They beat him, they beat him repeatedly, and they send him away without what's due to the owner. Right? They send him away without anything. They refuse to pay. And so the owner sends another servant. And they beat him in the head repeatedly, and they treat him shamefully, and they send him away. And he sends another servant, and they kill that one. And the owner keeps sending servants. You notice that? It's not just three, and then he says, that's it, I'm done. He says many of them. Many other servants are sent. And every single one, they either beat or they kill. And the implication is they send away empty. And so finally, what does the owner say? Well, they don't respect the servants, but they'll respect my son. They'll respect the son who is not just a servant in the household, but is a son, a beloved son, the owner's son. Surely they'll respect him. And what do the tenants say in verse 6? Here is the heir. Let's kill him. And then we'll take the vineyard for ourselves. Um, They were leasing the land from the landowner as stewards. They were supposed to be stewards of something that didn't belong to them. But they show by the way they answer, they're not happy being stewards. They want to be the sovereigns. They don't want to be the the leaseholders in the land. They want to be the owners. Under under the law of that time, if, if if a land had no no heir. If an owner died and he had land, he had no heir. It could become sort of considered at law ownerless property and someone could just make a claim on it and take it. And that seems to be what they hope to do. We'll kill the heir and then after he's gone, when the owner dies, we'll just take this all for ourselves. Um, And at the end of telling this parable, after the, the son is sent and they kill him, And the one that the owner loves, they take and they throw outside the vineyard and dump him unceremoniously outside of the vineyard. Jesus asked the question that everyone who heard the parable would have known the answer to. Right, The question that he asks in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? Uh, The question is a striking question, Um, not just because we know the answer from how these tenants have acted, uh, but it's an interesting way to put the question uh, because of the word that's used there for owner. The Greek word for owner there is kurios. What will the Lord of the vineyard do? 
It's the same word that appears in the quotation from Psalm 118 in verse 11. This was the Lord's doing. Again, it's the kurios. It's the Lord's doing. And so Jesus, I think, is putting a fine point on that question by saying, what will the Lord of the vineyard do to the tenants who've treated his son and his servants this way? He will surely destroy them and give the vineyards to others. They didn't want to be stewards, they wanted to be sovereigns, but the owner will come and make them nothing. That's the point of this parable. And the point of the parable is to expose the identities of the people around Jesus by use of this story. And finally, and ultimately by the use of that quotation from Psalm 118. And obviously, because Jesus is telling the parable to these religious authorities, we know exactly who they are in the story. They like to think of themselves as the Lord's servants. But what they really are are the wicked tenants in the story. The ones who always refuse to be stewards in the vineyard and instead want to be sovereign lords. Uh, they want to rule, not to serve. And what Jesus is doing is saying, in doing that, they join the long line of wicked people who have ruled the people of God and rejected the servants of God whenever he has sent them to him. They have always rejected the Lord's servants. They have always sent them away empty. And no matter how many he has sent, they've treated them all the same way. They've either, they either beat them or they kill them, but the one thing they don't do is ever listen to them. And Jesus is saying these same religious authorities just stand in that long, sad line of Israel's leaders who cannot recognize the servants of God when they come. And who are the servants in the, in the parable who keep being sent over and over and over again to a people who reject them? The servants of the Lord are the prophets. The prophets that the Lord continued to send to Israel trying to call them back to himself trying to correct the leaders of their day, right? Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the way down through all the prophets until the last Old Testament prophet came who was John the Baptist. Um, and if you think I'm missing, messing up my Bible, I know John the Baptist is from the New Testament, but he's an Old Testament figure. He really is the last Old Testament figure. The last of the prophets... The last of the servants of God coming into the vineyard and saying, this is not what God wants. You are not giving him his due. And how were they treated all the time? They were rejected, they were beaten, they were killed, they were persecuted, they were not heard. And what did God do? After he sent all those servants... He said, I will have one more to send. I'm going to send my beloved son. That's who Jesus is. He is the beloved son, not a servant in the household, but the Lord. And what will they do to him? See how Jesus is saying this before any of it happens? 
so that his disciples can think back and say, yeah, Jesus said this would happen. They treat the son just the way they they treat the servants. Because they have the same regard for the Lord either way. They don't regard his servants, they don't regard his son. And they think that rejecting the son will allow them to finally be sovereigns. And what is the parable reminding us? Jesus is the last opportunity to listen and hear. There's no, there's no one else coming after him. The owner has sent and he sent and he sent and he had still one more. That's his son. He's the last. His word, if it is not listened to and heard, will involve judgment. And the Lord will destroy the wicked tenants. And then what will become of the vineyard? Does this mean God's people come to nothing for lack of faithful leaders? No, what will the Lord of the vineyard do when he comes? He'll destroy the wicked tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. He'll give the vineyard to others. To others who will be faithful stewards of the vineyard. To people who will be stewards over the people of God. Um, ultimately, the one to whom the vineyard is entrusted is Jesus, who is the true Israel of God. And he and then entrusts it to his new Israel constituted in the church. Right? He'll turn over the rule from the religious authorities that have never ruled it right, and he will give it over into the hands of his apostles. Right? The reconstituted Israel of God, the 12 apostles of God who will be servants and who will be stewards and who will point and raise up other faithful pastors and elders who will labor for the Lord of the vineyard in his vineyard. Labor for him and build it up for him. The parable tells us a lot of important things about the identities of the people, but maybe most of all it reminds us of who our Heavenly Father is. Who the owner of the vineyard really is. What a gracious Lord He is. I don't think anyone listening to this parable would have tolerated this level of behavior by their tenants. They would have expected the parable to go, the rents were due, he sent his servant, they wouldn't pay, and so then he came and kicked them out. But that's not the story, is it? It's a story of a God who was so patient and forbearing with a faithless people, who continued to send servant after servant after servant after servant to turn the hearts of his people back to him. It shows that our Father is a gracious Lord. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He bears and forbears with people. But it also reminds us that He will not bear and forbear forever. He sent His Son in these last days into the world to be heard. And the parable reminds us if people will not hear Him, He will be a fearsome judge against them. Jesus is telling these religious leaders, the Lord has borne and foreborne with you for a long time, but he will not do it forever. 
The time has come. He sent his son. He's not sending anyone else. If his son is not listened to, there's no hope. Our father is a gracious Lord, but he's also a fearsome judge. But the final glorious thing that we see in this passage is that our father is a great builder. Because we might be tempted to say, you know, if, if the vineyard goes the way its authorities go, then what hope is there for the people of God? If the religious experts can't be trusted, where do we find hope? Um, and, and Jesus gives the hope that was contained all the way back in Psalm 118. That said, yeah, there will be stones that the builders reject. The people that should be building up the people of God will reject the building materials God has given as unfit. But does that mean that the Lord's plan is defeated? Does that mean our Heavenly Father will not be able to build what is His? No, what does Psalm 118 celebrate? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And how does that happen if the builders don't use the stones that God has given, the builders don't use the materials that the Lord has provided? Then how does the building get built? How does a stone get rejected by builders but still end up being the cornerstone? And the answer is there too. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus will be rejected. He will be killed. He will be destroyed by the wicked tenants. But what will his father do? His father will raise him from the dead. And he will give him all authority in heaven and on earth. And his son will send faithful builders, stewards who will raise up and build on the foundation that the Lord has laid. And some of those builders will go forth in Jesus' name and they will do the things that he did and they will say the things that he said and some of these same religious leaders will come to them and say, whose authority are you acting on? When Peter and John heal the man in the temple courts and and the same religious leaders, maybe some of the same people saying this to Jesus, come to Peter and John and say, by whose authority are you doing this? You know what they say to them? We do it in the name of Jesus Christ. And do you know who he is? In Acts 4, 11, and 12, they say, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Lord will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the sad place this passage leaves us is with these leaders who have learned nothing. Not from God's word, not from God's son. I think that's the sad implication of what Jesus says in verse 10 when he says, have you not read this scripture? has the implication of being read aloud. Saying you all have probably read this scripture out loud to God's people and you don't know that it's talking about you. 
They planned to kill him. They were plotting to destroy him when he was doing what he did in the temple. They're still seeking to arrest him. And why are they seeking to arrest him? They want to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Again, we're left with everybody knowing exactly what Jesus is saying. This is not one of those parables where people go away saying, oh, I wonder what he was talking about. Everybody knows what he was talking about. The religious leaders know what he was talking about. All the people around know that he was talking about them. They realize they want to arrest him, but they can't because everybody knows that this parable is about them. And they don't turn from their evil ways. And they go on to do what every religious leader who is dishonest and blind and faithless has done in every other generation. And this passage calls on us not to end up like they did. We need to be a people who hear the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. In these last days, God has spoken by his Son. And we must not be those who fail to hear the truth and reject the one who is the cornerstone. We have to hear the truth and we have to understand the reality that there is salvation in no one else. Right? There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And God is calling on us all to respond the right way to Jesus. To put our faith and trust in him as our only hope. And in him to find salvation and rest for our souls. May we all know that heaven sent him to save us from our sins. And by believing in him, may we have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your grace, how you are a God who forbears with the weakness and the sins of your people, that you were so gracious in continuing to send servant after servant to proclaim the truth. And we thank you that in these last days you've sent your Son, who is the exact imprint of your nature, who you've made Lord over all. And we pray, Lord, that the word that continues to be spoken in his name would be heard. We thank you that you've raised up faithful servants and stewards of the mysteries of the gospel of Christ to be faithful builders and to proclaim the truth of his word. And how sad we are to think of how many generations of people who should be leaders have rejected his gospel and his truth. We pray that we would be those who recognize by your spirit that Jesus comes from you, that the message he brings is the message of salvation and that there is hope in no one else. We pray that you would help us to hear that message, to understand it by the illumination of the Spirit, and to put our trust in the one who you sent to save sinners from their sins, even your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.